Why don't we just open up with a word of prayer. Father, we want to give you thanks for this day. Lord, you are the creator of life, the creator of meaning, the creator of all things, and uh, for that we give you glory. We thank you, Lord, for your son, Jesus Christ, who is the uh, representation of your very essence. We thank you, Lord, for uh, the fact that he came down to build a bridge uh, between us who are uh, sinful men, uh, but your love is beyond all measure. So we thank you for his sacrifice uh, on our behalf and pray that you would uh, bless our morning. Um, Father, we are anxious to lift up your name and worship you and we commit our time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I appreciate you being here. This is uh, this topic is a little, just a little bit weighty. Um, there is, uh, if you've been in the apologetics conferences, obviously you know that in our, in our culture, in our society, there is the rejection of, of absolute truth, the idea that absolute truth is something that uh, exists, is being denied, and that's filtered down into a lot of different areas. And one of the areas that that's filtered down to is just the re rejection of uh, meaning or absolute truth in terms of language. And so why, uh, why would we, at Apologetics Conference, discuss uh, the denial of objectivity or uh, meaning in language? Well, because it has significance, has a lot of significance to our faith. God has revealed himself in the scriptures. Uh, he's given us a revelation in his word. And so if we don't have, if there's no such thing as absolute meaning or absolute truth, then we cannot find that uh, when we read the scriptures. I mean, it just, that's just um, something that we won't be able to do. If there's no absolute meaning, then we can't, we can't understand absolute truth. And so language is something that conveys meaning. Um, so we believe that it's possible as evangelicals uh, to obtain an objective meaning, an objective understanding of what's communicated in God's word. By objective, I simply mean uh, in, in the literature with linguistic philosophers and, and others, uh, just the very term objectivity, you know, what does it mean to be objective? What, is, what does objectivity mean? I mean, that's something that's debated uh, left and right. So I simply mean by objective that we can come to the Bible, we can come to the text, when I say text, anything that we read, and we can basically understand what is communicated in, uh, in the scriptures or in what we read. That's something that's denied uh, by philosophers. And what's interesting is, or what's sad really, is that there are a lot of uh, professing evangelical Christians that are denying that we can have an objective understanding of, of the Bible. Uh, there are a lot of seminary professors, I'll talk about it a little bit later, a lot of seminary professors who are teaching hermeneutics in evangelical seminaries across the country that deny that we can have an objective understanding of the scriptures. And so if that's the case, and the seminary professors are teaching this, um, where do seminary students go after they graduate? They go to the pulpit, they fill the pulpits, they fill churches. And so um, it's not a topic that you typically hear at Apologetics Conference, but these are some of the issues that I've been um, you know, doing some reading and studying on about, so that's why I decided I think it's important for us uh, to discuss it. So there's a Christian, uh, this guy Mortimer Adler wrote a book called Some Questions About Language, 
and he makes this uh, he makes this comment about uh, objectivity in language. He says, meaningless marks and sounds, uh, however they may be arranged or used, do not constitute language, right? All right so that's really obvious. So if I stand up and say, la, 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 mum, 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 I'm not communicating any kind of meaning. And he says, a meaningless language is a contradiction in terms. So words carry meaning, right? That's, that's obvious. Um, but if I tell you I'm thirsty, can I have a drink of water? That communicates meaning. You understand what I'm saying about that. So when the Bible says, you know, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, we can understand, um, Christians and non-Christians can understand what the Bible is communicating. Now, non-Christians may not understand, you know, what does it mean by God having a son? Uh, what does salvation mean? You know, so there, there's obviously there's some spiritual issues that unbelievers may not understand. But uh, because the scriptures are communicated in, in uh, human language and they communicate in words, we can, we can un unbelievers as well as Christians can have an understanding of the text. Now, like I mentioned, there are critics that will argue that there are stark differences in how the Bible is interpreted, right? I mean, you and I will, can understand that there are really stark differences in how Mormons understand the Bible how Jehovah's Witnesses understand the Bible. Uh, but how do you account for the differences um, within evangelical circles, right? So critics will say, well, well, you, you have, you know, you have a, such a variety of, of understandings and interpretations. If you had the Q&A session yesterday, uh, a young man asked an excellent question about denominations, right? Why, we, you know, why do we have so many different denominations? Uh, and critics will say, well, look, see, you have so many different denominations. You have different understandings of, of the interpretation of scriptures between denominations, within denominations, even within the same church, even in the same Bible study, uh, even the same family, right? I mean, you may have differences of opinion with your husband, your siblings, your parents, whatever, about how to interpret certain passages in scriptures. So the argument is if, if there are so many different underst you know, understandings, interpretations, then, then we cannot possibly be objective about uh, our understanding with the scriptures. But is that really a sound argument? Uh, I'm going to argue that it's not. Because the larger issue is, you know, is the, the larger issue that these people are focusing on is, is objectivity even um, obtainable? Can, can we be objective? Can we have a correct understanding of the scriptures? Um, one of my professors wrote his dissertation in this area, which um, part of my, the material of my study is, is from his book. He wrote a book called Objectivity and Biblical Interpretation. And again, one of the defining factors is, is how, how people in the literature uh, define objectivity. So he writes that a recurring theme that comes up over and over again in discussions of objectivity in some sense, involves the notion of a neutral judgment. So somehow, uh, when people talk about objectivity, they they deny the fact, or they, they seem to think in terms of being totally neutral. So he says that uh, we come to the text with a neutral judgment that, that strives to be free from all biases, prejudice, presuppositions, 
preconceived ideas, pre-understandings of other factors that might distort one's understanding or conclusion. So what's, what's denied is that uh, we can be free from those things. And no one's arguing that. We all have, I think if you heard Alex McFarlane yesterday, he says we all have biases. Uh, we all come to the text with certain presuppositions. When an atheist opens up the Bible and he reads the Bible, he comes with a different uh, set of assumptions about the scriptures than you or, or I would. Um, I had a friend that, uh, when I was in the police department, was an atheist, and um, so you, you think about you think about reality, okay? All of truth and reality in terms of a pie, and a big part of that pie is the supernatural, right? I mean, God is a supernatural being. Um, and so if, you, if you're an atheist, then automatically a big part of that pie is sliced off, right? If you're a naturalist, which um, a lot of scientists you know, who are atheists, they believe that everything is just all material, there's no supernatural, everything, everything in reality is just physical. Um, so that person is, is uh, denying a big part of reality. So when he comes to the scriptures, Right? My friend who was an atheist uh, reads the Bible. There, there are things about the scriptures that he is just going to reject automatically. He's going to reject miracles. Uh, he's going to reject the resurrection. He's going to reject uh, the idea that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. So he's going to look at those things and deny that right from the start because those are the presuppositions or the assumptions or the biases that he brings to the text. You and I uh, operate on the assumption that the scriptures are inspired. They are inerrant in the original uh, copies, right? So the original manuscripts that, you know, Apostle Paul wrote was without error, was totally inspired. Obviously, our translations, uh, we don't consider the translations inspired, right? But we do consider the original. Era. So those are some of the biases and assumptions that we have. But what uh, critics are saying is that if you, uh, if you assume that you can be objective, then that means that you, you're coming to the scriptures without any uh, presuppositions or um, biases. And so to be free from all preconceptions, preconceptions and presuppositions which we bring to the Bible uh, they say would distort our understanding of it, and since we have, uh, since we all have preconceptions and biases when we come to the Bible, then again, objectivity is not possible. So the question is, is that true? I mean, can we can we have biases or can we have preconceptions and still have an objective understanding of the scriptures? And I think it's true. I think we we could, because if we if we could never get an understanding of what the Bible is talking about, um, then we can never hear a sermon, we can never sit in a Bible study, we can never have a discussion and say, you know what, uh, that's a misunderstanding of what Jesus was saying, or you know, this doctrine really is not lining up with the scriptures. So, so if, if, we, if, if objectivity is impossible, then we can't even do evangelism, right? I mean, how, how can you share your faith with someone if we come to the text and uh, we can't really have a grasp of what it's saying? 
And I think Jesus and, and Paul, the Apostle Paul, wrote as if we can have a, an objective and correct understanding of the scriptures. And, and this is implied in some of the following verses. Jesus, uh, he commended the Ephesians in Revelation. He said, I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance, and I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, and that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. Well, if you have an absolute standard of truth in which you can judge between what is right and wrong, then um, then then how is it, if we don't have that, then how can we find people's, you know, teachings? How can, how can Jesus say that you found them false? He also writes, uh, Revelation 2.20, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. By her teaching, she misleads my servants. So she has a false teaching, um, and we have the ability to adjudicate whether it's true or false, by the truth that was revealed by God. Uh, Paul instructed Titus to, re to rebuke those who, to hold, who hold false doctrines so that they will be sound in the faith. Uh, so there's plenty of scriptures which imply that we can have a correct and objective understanding. If you read Paul's letters to Timothy, I mean, it's just filled with exhortations for Timothy um, to refute false teachings, to come up against false doctrines, um, to hold deep, you know, hold deep the truths of the faith. He says, uh, watch your life and doctrine closely. So all of these passages assume that uh, objectivity is possible. Like I mentioned, there are evangelicals who deny this. And so, um, unfortunately, it's something that's denied both in the church and without the church, from without the church. So in their book, the Introduction to Biblical Interpretation, three authors, evangelical Christian authors, William Klein, Craig Blomberg, who teaches at Denver Seminary over in Colorado, and Robert Hubbard, they write this, no one comes to the task of understanding as an objective observer. So here are guys that have written a book about Bible interpretation, hermeneutics, hermeneutics is um, you know what hermeneutics means? It's like the science of translation. Uh, the Greek god Hermes, right? He was the messenger of the god, so he conveys the message. That's where we get the word hermeneutics. So they're denying that no one comes to uh, the task of understanding as an objective observer. There was an article in a book called Christian, uh, Christian Apologetics in the Postmodern World. Now here's a book on a Christian apologetics in the postmodern world. And um, this guy, Philip Kennison, he wrote an article. This is the name, this is the name of the uh, chapter in the book. There is, no, there is no such thing as objective truth, and it's a good thing too. And so here's a Christian, you know, a professed Christian, who's arguing in an apologetics book that objective truth uh, is, not, is not something that is uh, in existence. No such thing as objective truth, and it's a good thing, too. This woman, Alice Bellis, she says that uh, there is an emerging consensus among Bible interpreters that objectivity is impossible and even dangerous. Moises Silver, another evangelical, writes, total objectivity on the part of the interpreter does not exist. So again, the idea that 
people come to the uh, people come to the, uh, the scriptures with their own framework, their own worldview, their own presuppositions uh, prevents us from being objective. Is something that's being espoused in the church, and this is just this is just a very dangerous thing. And what is specious about these arguments? Uh, what is self-defeating about these arguments is that these people are writing uh, their views and expressing their arguments in language, writing in books. So they assume that when we read their books and when we read their arguments, that we would understand what they're communicating in, in human language, right? And so it's kind of self-defeating. So you're arguing that we can't we can't understand. Uh, the scriptures or anything we read because we have biases, but they're writing books assuming that we can understand what they're writing. So it's uh, it's just self-defeating. And like I said, if if we can't if we can't have an objective understanding of the scriptures, then uh, we can't witness to atheists. We can't have a discussion with Mormons or Jehovah Witnesses. Uh, we can't even we can't do apologetics. We can't even engage in evangelism. So it's important to understand that with the rejection of objective meaning, which is what these people are arguing for, is a rejection of, of, of objective truth. So interpreting the Bible correctly should concern us as, um, as followers of Christ, because if we believe that God communicated to us in his word, then uh, it's important that uh, we can that we understand and and we we can affirm that we can understand what was communicated through human language and um, and that we you know it's important that we can affirm that we can have a correct understanding of what was communicated so again if the objective understanding of the bible is not possible then it's 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 then it's not possible to understand the truth that god has communicated to us so that's an argument that we uh, we reject. So um, I just want to I just want to be clear. I'm not I'm not saying I'm not, I'm not saying that uh, I'm not saying that we don't come to the to the scriptures with you know some biases or, or pre understandings, and I'm not I'm not saying that there aren't that that anyone can have a total objective and, and correct understanding of scriptures. I mean there there are a number of things that prevent us from understanding certain passages or certain theological concepts, uh, which is why one of the reasons why we have a bunch of different denominations. You know, throughout the history of the church, certain issues arose and people in the church took different positions um, and you have different denominations. There are, uh, you know, any number of differences that we have with people concerning issues like, you know, baptism, they, you know, it came out yesterday, like, do we, you know, does the, the scriptures teach, you know, baptism by immersion? Do we, uh, there are churches that believe we can, uh, you know, sprinkle infant baptism. Uh, Pentecostal churches believe, you know, churches who affirm that the gifts are in operation today and we have gifts of healing and speaking in tongues and these things. And then there are other churches that believe that some of the gifts ceased, you know, after the first century. But all of those are really kind of peripheral issues, right? I mean, when it comes to the, the fundamental core doctrines of the faith, the, uh, the deity of Christ, the, um, the, you know, God's nature being a triune, the, the, 
The Holy Spirit is God. Jesus is God. Salvation by, by grace alone. Um, you know, Christ's redemption on the cross. I mean, these core doctrines that we hold are pretty much held by, unless you're a liberal church, but pretty much everybody in evangelical uh, in, in evangelical Christianity. So I'm not saying, so I'm just saying that objectivity is possible, even though we may have um, differences of opinion. And a part of that is, you know, we are separated by several, at least 2,000 years plus from the, from the, from the New Testament and, you know, 4,000 years from uh, the Old Testament. So there's, there's, a, there's a big gap in time between the 21st century and what was written uh, thousands of years ago. So we, so we have to bridge that gap. You know, there are certain challenges. Uh, we have different cultures, right? These ancient Semitic cultures, very different from uh, living here in LaGrange, North Carolina in the 21st century. So there's different cultural, the cultural differences. And so there are certain things that uh, because we have, maybe we don't, we don't understand some of the cultural things that were going on, maybe a little ambiguous. Uh, also, again, the language, right? The scriptures were written in a different language. And so when we read our Bibles, uh, we are kind of we're pretty much at the mercy of the Bible translators uh, because the Bible translators have to take the Greek, the Hebrew, um, and they have to make certain interpretive decisions when they translate it from Greek into English. So we're kind of at the mercy of translators. So there may be things that we read uh, that we're just not really sure about, but uh but those things doesn't necessarily mean that we can't understand the check. This just the text. There are certain things that you know Paul talks about. You know we see through uh, you know glass dimly. I mean there are just certain things that we don't understand. But that doesn't mean that we can't have uh, an understanding of the text. If 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 having um, object if denying ob if, if people say that we can't have objectivity then because of our biases, then um, somebody like an atheist or a Muslim could never come to faith in Christ by reading the scriptures. I mean, Alex McFarlane shared yesterday that he was witnessing to a Muslim friend of his for a whole year. You think that, you know, you think that Muslim, when, when they opened up the scriptures, had certain presuppositions about the scriptures? Yeah, absolutely. But uh, it came to the point uh, where uh, there were some truths that, that he began to understand um, and I, I mean, I would argue through the power of the Holy Spirit, but he came, to, you know, he came, made it, came to a point in his life where he came to faith in Christ. Um, I know, I know of atheists that have just read the scriptures and regardless of their biases or presuppositions, have come to faith in Christ. So let me just talk a little bit about the, the erosion of objectivity. Like how, how is it that, um, how is it that we got to this point where we have seminary professors denying that we can have an objective understanding of scriptures? And a lot of that comes from philosophy. A lot of, a lot of the trends in the church, a lot of the arguments, uh, back in the 60s, there was a big debate in seminaries about the inerrancy and the inspiration of the scriptures. A lot of seminary professors, they went off to Germany, they studied under liberal theologians who were influenced by philosophers. Uh, they came back and they began teaching in our seminaries and there was a big debate about, you know, is the Bible uh, inspired? Is the Bible inerrant? Um, 
And so philosophy starts, uh, you have philosophers that make an impact in various areas. They get into the seminaries, into academia, and then it just filters down into the church. But um, prior to uh, the 1960s, there were a lot of interpreters who believed that we can have an objective understanding of, uh, of what we read. And, but because of linguists and philosophers, again, they began to deny truth. Uh, truth filtered down into meaning um, because words are carrier of meaning. And that began to filter, filter down. Um, and so certain philosophers believed that all meaning was relative. So what does that mean? So it's the philosophical attitude that there are certain fundamental principles of a certain kind which are grounded, not in reality, but are grounded in how culture defines meaning. Now, an example today would be the whole issue of marriage. Okay, we talk about, you know, we have this big debate, not debate, but this uh, same-sex marriage. And so people will argue that marriage is defined by how the culture defines it. So if the culture defines marriage between a man and a woman, then culture can change that, can easily change that definition. As believers, as Christians, we deny that it's that um, that marriage is defined by culture. Marriage is an institution created by God. It's ordained by God, and therefore it has its it, it's absolute moral grounding in God's nature. And so that's also, so marriage has always been between a man and a woman, and always will be between a man and a woman, because that's how God ordained it. But the argument is because people uh, in the 21st century reject that God is, that the basis of, of, of objective moral values are in God's nature. They say it's in, it's in society, it's in culture. We, de we, we determine uh, how we define marriage. And so so you have uh, you have the argument that uh, that that values and morals and meaning is culturally relative and it's not based in, in an objective moral values. There's a uh, there was a philosopher um, writer named Jacques Derrida, and he was very 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 influence influential in this area. Him, another guy, Michael Foucault. These are some guys, are you familiar? Have you ever heard of the term postmodern or postmodernity? Is that something that you ever hear that term? Well, he he was one of the um, pioneers, or, or at least one of the the guys who uh, embraced that idea. And he just denied that uh, language has meaning. That language conveys meaning. So language. Linguists, right? People who study language, they say that language is made up of what they call signs, right? Signs. So words are signs or signifiers, and so these signs or signifiers point to something else called the signified or meaning. So, in other words, uh, driving down the street, you know what a stop sign is. Everybody knows what a stop sign is. So, a stop sign is a sign. Right? It's just that, but the stop sign points to something else. So, people. Department of Traffic or Transportation, they don't put stop signs on the corner because they're nice decorations, right? I mean, it's a nice shade of red, beautiful letters, white. Um, signs point to something else. So what, what, what does a stop sign point to? And when I say point to, the meaning, right? So it's a sign, and here's the meaning. So what's the meaning of a stop sign? 
Stop the car because because you might hit somebody, right? Or you come to an intersection and you know you have traffic flowing in two different ways, and unless you have a stop sign there, yeah, you're gonna get into an accident. So, so words and language kind of work in a similar way. So if I say um, you know the word tree, tree points to a thing out in the world that's a tree, right? So you have a word tree, you have an actual thing in reality, tree, and so the word is a sign, tree, the tree is a signifier, is the meaning, and this communicates that there's an objective reality, something called tree. Everybody follow me? This is kind of getting a little technical, all right? Now, Jacques Derrida, he says, no, 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 no. He says, words, words don't point to something in external reality. Now, it gets really complicated, but he, he just denies that. So he says, this thing in the, he says, he says, we use language to convey meaning, and we think that language encapsulate truth about things that are out there in reality. But he says that's not that's not true. He says language, uh, he says language and and words. There, there's no unifying truth behind it. So he says when you read something, right? So we have words that communicate language. We have written words that communicate language. So he says no. When you read something, you don't find the meaning. You create the meaning. All right, so, so meaning is not something that we get from the text, but meaning is something that we put into the text. So if you, uh, we have, in the seminary, we, occasionally we have this thing called, it's a, an evangelistic outreach, it's called Operation Be Noble, um, Barnes and Nobles, you're familiar with Barnes and Nobles bookstore, right? So we have this operation, it's called Operation Be Noble. So Periodically, a group of students will meet at the seminary uh, early Saturday morning and will fan out to about uh, three or four different Barnes and Nobles in the Charlotte area. And what we do is we'll, we'll go to the religion section or the occult section uh, or the Bible section. We'll go to some of these sections and then as people come kind of browsing books, you know, we'll, we'll start to engage them in conversation. So several months ago, I went out, and the first guy I spoke to uh, was a high school teacher. So I, I approached him, and you know, I said, "Hey, I'm, you know, I'm a seminary student, uh, philosophy major." I said, "You know, do you mind if I ask you a question?" And he says, "No, you know, I mean, most people, you know, if you put it in that context, as long as you're not trying to sell anybody something early Saturday morning, people, people tend have, people tend to give you their uh, attention." So I said, what do you think about the idea of objective truth? Is, 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 do you think that there's something called objective truth? Um, and so he started thinking, he says, huh, he says, yeah, he says, you know, that's a, he says, it's an interesting question. He says, yeah, I've just been discussing this for the last several weeks with my students. I said, really? He says, yeah, I'm a high school teacher, and I teach English literature. I'm an English teacher, and I tell my students that, you know, we're going through some American authors. So I tell my students, when you read the materials, I want you to be, uh, I want you to be critical. I want you to be creative, um, but I want you to understand that when the authors write, 
they're writing from their own perspective, their own worldview, and um, when you read what they write, rather than trying to figure out what they mean, I want you to be creative and you interpret on how you think what you think that the author is trying to say. So it's, it's classic Derrida, right? Um, we're not taking meaning from the, from the text, but we're imposing meaning on it. We're, we're, we're re, uh, reconstructing is a term that he uses. Um, so I said, I said, oh, I said, okay. So I said, do you give exams in your class? He says, oh yeah, of course. In fact, uh, you know, we've got finals coming up pretty soon. This was, toward, this was in the end of the, you know, late spring, so you know, get close to finals. So I said, oh, I said, okay. So um, you're preparing the students for the finals? He says, yeah. You know, we've been going through that. We're, you know, discussing all these different authors. So I said, okay. I said, so I guess everybody's gonna pass with an A, right? And he says, what do you mean? I said, are you going to give A's to all your students on the finals? He said, well, why would I want to do that? I said, well, because you're teaching them that they bring their own perspective and they add their own meaning in the text. So regardless of what they write about the authors, I said, you can't mock them for being wrong on their own opinions, can you? And you know, the, look on his, <laughs> the look on his face is like he just, you know, he goes, ah, you know, uh, he says, I never really thought of it that way. So then, you know, we had a discussion about the nature of truth and, you know, every, every argument that he gave, every time he tried to justify his position, I think he was just twisting himself, you know, into a bigger, bigger knot. Um, and he just, you know, automates, well, you know, I, I'm not really that good in philosophy. Uh, he says, and, he's, and he said he had to go meet his wife, which, you know, I never saw her anyway, but uh, that, that was the end of that conversation. But it just... To deny that uh, that we can get meaning or objectivity from the text is really a difficult position to uh, to justify. We have that we have that uh, debate within the Constitution, um, and and Jacques, Jacques Derrida was very influential even in, in legal fields, not only in literature but in, in, in legal fields. Now, how, are you familiar with? Have you heard the term that the Constitution is a living, breathing document? Have you heard that? Right, so what does that mean? That means that, excuse me, that means that, um, forget about what the founding fathers meant when they put this document together. We, we live in the 21st century and we are to, uh, based on everything that's going on, we are to apply meaning to the, to the Constitution. And so we can change it every which way we we, we want to because we're the ones that we're the ones that bring meaning to the Constitution rather than try to determine what is it that the founding fathers uh, were trying to communicate. Several months ago, you might recall um, the Affordable Care Act, right? The Obamacare. Uh, there was a big debate in Obamacare because the way, if you're familiar with Obamacare, then how it's written in, in the law, right? That Congress passed, everything is written, it's on paper. States have to set up these health exchanges, right? So you go on and you sign up for Obamacare, but that has to be set up by the states. So one of the things that the administration wanted to do to encourage states to set up these health exchanges is that they were going to give um, subsidies uh, 
forgot how many thousands of dollars per person who signed up. But they were going to give these subsidies to people who signed up on the healthcare exchange. Now, what they didn't figure was that there were a number of states, I think at the time there were 33 states, that refused to do that. Right? So there's 33 states, governors, that decided that they weren't going to set up the health exchanges by Obamacare. So the federal government said, all right, you want to be a wise guy? Then we'll set up the exchanges. So they set up exchanges in these states, and they started, you know, whoever signed up, the federal government was giving these people thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars in subsidies. Well, a number of states got together and they sued. They said, wait a minute, the way it's written in the law is that in order for people who signed up to get federal subsidies, that has to come through exchanges that have been set up by the state, not by the federal government. And so they argued that and the, I might, I might get this backwards, but I think it was the Fourth Circuit in DC, Washington, DC, agreed. And so they won that particular lawsuit. And they and they said, yeah, that's right, because the way it's written in the law, these exchanges must be set up by the state in order for the federal government to give thousands of dollars in subsidies. But since these states didn't set up Obama, you know, the exchanges, and the federal government did. The federal government is illegally giving all of these subsidies. Okay? So they read what was in the law, and the Fourth Circuit agreed that the administration, uh, it was an illegal practice for the administration to give, up, to give these subsidies. Now, the Ninth Circuit, which I think covers Virginia, North Carolina, they ruled the very opposite. They ruled that, okay, the law says, right, it's written in, in, in the law that Congress passed, that the states have to set up these exchanges, but we know that the intention was for the government to give subsidies to whoever signed up. But the argument was like, yeah, but we don't interpret the law based on what people intend to do. We based the law on what's written, and they lost. So you have one circuit saying whatever is written is what you have to go by, and we have another circuit saying, well, even though it's written that way, the understanding is uh, this is how it's going to be, so we ruled against. So that's something that's headed to the Supreme Court eventually. But that, that illustrates this very notion that when we come to the text, do we get meaning from the text, or do we impose meaning onto it? And um, that's you know that's just another way of of that being played out. Now I mentioned the term deconstruction. What Jacques Derrida says is that we deconstruct language. We take it apart. We give our meaning, putting it back together again. Now the term deconstruction. Are you familiar with the term deconstruction? Has anybody watched the Food Network? Right? Okay, so I'm always between Food Network and the Murder Channel. Right? <laughs> Those are the only two things that I watch. I'm sorry. Just some bad habits or uh, not that I'm a murderer, I was a detective. I watch it, my name is that guy. Yeah. 
So a lot of these challenges that these chefs get is to deconstruct a dish, right? Do you familiar? So some of these challenges, they'll give these chefs, uh, uh, all right, so you have um, Popeye, you know, chicken Popeye, some, some like dish that we're all familiar with. And, and the challenge is for them to deconstruct it and come out with a new dish. So it's kind of the same with language. So what you're doing is you're taking the original ingredients, chicken, gravy, pastry, whatever, and you're taking it apart, but then you reconstruct it um, in your own way and how you decide to reconstruct it. And, and Derrida is arguing, and others argue, that that's what we do with language, that we take it apart and then we put it together again. And he has this, um, he wrote this, he wrote an essay called Plato's Pharmacy. Everybody know, you know the philosopher Plato, right? Socrates, Plato, Aristotle. Um, sorry? Uh, oh. oh, yeah, 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 Play yeah, Play-Doh, that's right, yeah, you leave it out, it gets hard, then you get a, um, <laughs> I can appreciate that as a philosopher. So, in, in, in the Greek, so Derrida, he wrote this, this essay called Plato's Pharmacy. Now, Plato, uh, so, so, okay, so Socrates, let me back up, Socrates, great philosopher, never wrote anything, right, so he never wrote anything. His student, Plato, wrote a series of what they call dialogues. So he wrote these, um, not plays, but he, he, he wrote this literature called dialogues where he would have people interacting with Socrates. So it's either stuff that he learned from Socrates or stuff that he's imposing. But anyway, you recall that Socrates, uh, he, was, he was sent in and they forced him to drink the hemlock, right? He was accused of uh, turning all of the youths, Athens youths, against, uh, you know, making them into atheists. So they told him he has to take hemlock, right? He drinks the hemlock, hemlock is poison, and Socrates dies. So in terms of deconstruction language, this is what Derrida argues. He says that the word, when we get the term pharmaceuticals, comes from the word pharmakos. Now, pharmakos was a word that they used for the hemlock. So, doc, so, so, so Derrida says, well, look, look at the word pharmakos. Pharmakos means both a medicine and a poison. A poison is because Plato used the word to describe the hemlock. And it's a medicine because we get the word pharmaceuticals from the word, the Greek word pharmakos. This is what he says in, in his essay, Plato's Pharmacy. So he says, everybody wants to read the story of Socrates as him drinking the poison, you know, and him, him committing suicide. But because the word is, can also be used, pharmacos can also be used, pharmaceuticals, why can't we think of, uh, of Socrates drinking medicine? He says, because, he says, you, you like to impose the fact that it's, um, that it's poison and that, it, that, he's, that he dies, but I say that it also can be uh, medicine that he's cured. He says, you know, we don't like to, we don't like to think of death as a cure. But uh, he says, but we can look and see that pharmacos means both a drug that kills you and a medicine that cures you. Now, this is to the normal person like you and I that, that we have a grasp of reality. I mean, this is just nonsense. 
but they are philosophers and linguistic philosophers that just get very excited about this. You know, they just they just embrace this stuff. And what's really self-defeating about this whole thing is that he's written about 50 books to espouse this. I mean, he was a prolific writer. He was a really he was a really strange character. But in all 50 of his books, again, he assumes that we can have that we don't deconstruct what he's writing, but that we take the meaning of what he's communicating and that we can understand it, right? He also assumes that when he gets a check from the publishing company, that they will honor what was written in his contract, right? His publisher is not going to deconstruct his contract and say, hey, we were gonna pay you 50,000 for the book and give you 25% royalties, right? I mean, he, he would have been jumping up and down pulling his hair out if they decided well, we're going to reconstruct the, con the contract and uh, we're just going to give you uh, $50 for the book and we'll give you a half a percent royalties, right? Um, when he write, when they send him the check and he goes to the bank, he assumes that the bank teller is going to look at the check and see $50,000 and he doesn't want her to deconstruct the number on that check, right? And say, okay, I'm going to put in 5000 and I'll keep 45000 So, you understand what I'm saying? So you can't, you cannot possibly maintain this, this argument um, because you can't, it just, it just doesn't conform with reality. Now I see time is getting away, so let me just, uh, how, how do we grasp and understand meaning? How do we get um, an objective understanding of the text? Well, um, really quickly, and I, I mentioned it several times, is the, the basis of object, objectivity lies that meaning, the question is, where does the meaning lie? So when you read something, where does the meaning lie? Does it lie above the text, beyond the text, below the text? You know, do we, do we add meaning to it? No, the meaning comes from the text. So Dr. Norman Geisler, he wrote uh, four thick systematic theology books. And in the first book, he deals with semantics, linguistics, he deals with uh, meaning. So he says, his argument is that uh, four things, that uh, meaning is not relative to culture. Culture doesn't define what meaning is. That the meaning is objective because number one, there's an, there's an objective absolute mind in God, right? So, so God is an absolute uh, mind. And because God is absolute, the nature of meaning is absolute. There's analogy between, there's an, I'm going to talk about what the term analogy means, but analogy between an infinite understanding, of, right, God is infinite, and we're finite, and a finite understanding. And finally, the ability of a finite mind of God to communicate meaning uh, and truth to finite beings. So, the first one is the existence of an absolute mind in God. I, I don't need to defend that uh, here, but God exists. God has an infinite mind. Number two, that if if an absolute mind in God exists, then meaning is absolute. So whatever God means by something uh, is objective. It's infinite. Therefore, the existence of objective, absolute meaning is grounded in God's nature. It's grounded in God as the meaner, you know, he, he gives meaning. 
Now, analogy is, is possible for an infinite mind, is possible for God, having an infinite mind, to convey truth and meaning to finite creatures, us, through analogy. So, what's analogy? Analogy, whenever we talk about God, there's only three ways we can talk about God. Either univocally, equivocally, or analogically. That's the only three logical possibilities. To talk about God univocally means exactly the same. So if I say, uh, let's use the term good, okay? So if I use the term good, and I say, uh, this steak is good, or my grandmother is good, that term good is the same good if I say God is good. So you understand? So is the term is, is, is exactly the same. Now we deny that, right? Because a steak being good uh, is only as good as the purpose of a steak or how a steak is cooked. So, um, or a car, right? A car is supposed to, you know, supposed to work, supposed to get us here or there. So the idea of a car being good is insofar as the nature of a car. So it can't be it, it can't be that God is good in the same way that a car is good or a steak is good. So that's so we reject that. That's univocal. Equivocal means the very opposite. So if I say steak is good and God is good, they're two exact different meanings. But we can never really understand God. Like if we say God is love, um, and if we say that his love is totally different from the kind of love that we have, then, we, then there's no real connection. Does everybody follow me? This might be a little confusing, but so we can never understand what is what is what is what does it mean that God is love if the love that we express as humans is totally the opposite. We can never know anything about God. So what it's one of the things that Thomas Aquinas, great uh, Christian mind in the history of the church. He says that we can have an analogical understanding of God. So when we say that um, humans love and God's love, that there are some things, because we're created in his image, that there's something about God, about his love, that we can understand. In some ways it's different, but in a lot of ways it's, it, it's, you know, some ways it's the same, but a lot of ways it's different. So that's analogical. So we got it? So so what, what Dr. Geiser is arguing here is that because we can understand analogies, that we can have that connection between what God communicates and our understanding of what he communicates. And then finally, he says that uh, if an absolute mind in God exists, then there can be absolute meaning. So it's not impossible for an infinite mind to communicate uh, to communicate truths in, in language that we can, we can understand analogically. So we can discover the objective truth um, because God has disclosed it. Because if we can never discover it, then we can never know. Uh, we can never know that God, you know, the God who communicated it. That, that, that I know. I'm just trying to throw everything in here before. Um, so basically, uh, let me just summarize. So the notion that we can't have an objective understanding of the Bible, it's a notion that's made its way into seminaries and churches and pulpits. You may, in the next 50 years, never have a conversation with anybody about what I'm talking about today. 
But it is important because if we can't have an objective understanding of the scriptures, then we can't understand, we can't be able to determine truth and error. Um, we can never do evangelism, apologetics, and so on and so forth.